Hello, my name is Reverend Jodie Stoll. In the March 2020 lockdown due to COVID-19, I was in one of the few million households who were required to shield because I live with someone who is clinically extremely vulnerable. It's almost a year since that happened. Can you believe it? In that time, we've been under various regulations and we are now in the third lockdown. And for me, back to shielding. The way that I see the world and make sense of my faith in it is now fundamentally impacted by this whole experience. And so this is my podcast, Shielded. You're very welcome here. So here we are at week five of this podcast, just one more week left. Um, But today I have the pleasure uh, to welcome Rachel Mann, who shares her wit and wisdom with us today. Great. Uh, So we're recording and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Rachel Mann um, to uh, have conversation with me today in today's podcast. So, Rachel, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Jodie, and thanks for having me on. Uh, so, yes, I, I'm, I'm Rachel Mann. I'm a rector of a church in South Manchester. I'm area dean of Withington Deanery. Uh, I'm a, a, a writer and a, a maker and a creator, um, author of uh, 11 books so far. I mean, it, it, it currently focuses on uh, a novel, The God Gospel of Eve, which um, is a, a dark Gothic mystery thriller. And um, just out in recent weeks is a new Lent course uh, called Still Standing inspired by the movie rocket man which is a biopic of the first 40 years of elton john it's a follow-up to from now on which i wrote about the greatest showman so you'll have picked up i have a wide range of interests um I, i'm also at the risk and I, I can go on i go on for the whole length of the show here just with biog but i i think it's worth noting this um uh because it's out there and it's it's both an a dull part of me but it's also an important part of me um i'm a a trans woman um one of the first trans women to be ordained in the church of england and um i guess i guess i am passionate about inclusion and Mm. that's been an important part of of my ministry both in south manchester and on general synod the governing body of the church of england Mm. Brilliant. As you say, we could probably fill the space with, with you know, talking about your life, those experiences and, and all those creative things that you're uh, you're often creating um, and maybe another maybe another time. Uh, but we're here to talk about COVID and faith and what it's looked like in a time of COVID. Um, so, I mean, gosh, 10 months in we are now. What do you remember, you know, back then in February, March uh, 2020, when you began to realise that this was actually going to be a massive impact on life, but also on faith and how we did this thing together? Well, I do and I don't. And I do think there is this thing, lockdown amnesia. Um <laughs> What I do remember is back in February, a sense of 
of of a of a rumor taking shape mm. that at that point if somebody had asked me certainly early february if somebody had said to me oh what's this covid thing i, I would certainly have been aware of it but i i, I to my shame and embarrassment i i thought of it as oh it'll be a, a sort of strong flu um, and we'll all just need to be a little bit more careful. But it's it'll be the sort of thing that affects us in the winter and then things will be nice in the summer and then it might affect us a bit the following winter. I think a kind of key moment for me, though, in, I suppose, a narrative of, of, of a growing awareness, slowly becoming more aware of the situation, is that in February... And early March, I spent a lot of time in London and I, I won't bore the listeners by <laughs> detailing what that was about. Um, and I think I started to notice more masks. I noticed mm -hmm. that there was maybe a building sense of anxiety. And then, lo and behold, I come back from a jaunt to London and about 10 weeks, 10, 10 weeks, 10 days later, I start to get some symptoms mm -hmm. associated with COVID. And I think truth be told, I mean, the main thing was to do with uh, sense of smell. So I, I guess that, that we now know that's a classic COVID symptom, don't we? But I don't know. I don't know whether it was COVID or not. My symptoms didn't go sufficiently far to warrant me going into hospital and, and getting tested which was the only way you could get tested at, at mm. that point but effectively from the 16th of march that was me behind closed doors and uh self-isolating and then of course lockdown happened on the 23rd and i guess none of us None of us could deny that something huge and significant was happening at that point. What's really fascinating for me, and I will, you know, shut up in a second. What was fascinating for me is the naivety that I had and so many others had. I mean, I that that first lockdown was extraordinary. It's the sort of thing that we'll, we, we will have, we've been writing novels and plays about uh, and TV shows about, I think for, for decades, you know, we, it's going to be part of the theme of life um, from now on. But I genuinely thought we'll do three months and be very, everyone be very disciplined about it. And I felt there were high levels of discipline in that first lockdown, huge levels of discipline. I, I didn't go out of the house. I have a, the condition which means that I'm a more vulnerable um I didn't go out the house apart from into my little garden for yeah. three months and everything was brought to me and I genuinely thought Jody we'll do that three months and and that will break it um how naive <laughs> I mean I genuinely I remember saying to, uh, the, the to to a family for whom I took a funeral um in the run-up to lockdown, you know, before I was in self-isolation. Um, I remember saying, um, I know that we're now starting to have to look at maybe restricting things. We had these huge plans, you know, sort of 150 people and sort of scaled everything back as things started to look like they were going to 
turn completely towards lockdown. And I remember saying, yeah, we will have a massive um, celebration and memorial later on this year, yeah. maybe in the autumn. And I remember saying to people at church, oh, you know, we're going to have a great party um, July, August time. <laughs> it's extraordinary, really, the naivety. Yeah. The arrogance, perhaps, and overconfidence. Well, I mean, it was just unimaginable, I think. I hope it was more about lack of imagination than arrogance. Um, I remember being sat with my eldest. Um, she was at uni and in her halls at that time. And I went, um, so she was in central London. So I happened to be there for a meeting, went along to have a coffee with her. And this was in, I think, February end of January, beginning of February. And she was saying to me then, you know, mom, should I buy a mask? And I just looked at her like she'd lost, you know, oh, for goodness sake, she, you know, you know, into all these conspiracy theories and all yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. And I was a bit like, what, you know, there's been all these things since you were born, darling, you know, SARS and swine flu and bird flu and Ebola, you know, this is just one of those. Um, so yeah, maybe a bit of arrogance but just a lack of imagination, but also having experienced those things, you know, and not expecting this to be any different. And, and privilege too. I mean, I, yeah. I, one of the things that, that uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot and writing about a lot over the last few years is around precariousness and the various meanings of precariousness. Uh, and one of the things that, that COVID has revealed definitively for those of the privileged countries of the economic north is that we can we can have all the money in the world, we can have all uh, the um, technology in the world, but but we cannot eliminate completely precariousness. Now, admittedly, not everyone is affected equally, and you mm. know it is very clear that certain people, certain communities have been disproportionately affected by COVID. But there was a kind of stored up privilege in, yeah. in Western societies, for want of a better term, um, about, well, it couldn't happen here. Whereas we, we've been exposed much more to how most people in the world live much of the time. Although nonetheless, our privileges are significant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, over that time, you know, what did that look like as you began to kind of think about your faith community that you're part of and how that was going to look then and how that's evolved over the year? Yes. Um, and also what it's looked like, what your faith has looked like for you as you've ministered and been ministered to, um, but also in those, you know, moments on your own. Um, I mean, I, I, th I think that the, the, the first thing I want to talk about is community, faith community in, in which I'm set, in which I minister and, and which, which, of which I'm a leader. I, I have been stunned by its robustness and its resilience. I've been stunned by the fleet footedness <laughs> and the tenderness and the determination to find innovative ways to relate to one another 
so that we know that we are beloved in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's been reflected. I mean, again, maybe this is about privilege. Maybe it's about money. Maybe it's about uh, about having certain competencies in our community. But from the very first Sunday of lockdown, we switched immediately to some form of digital worship on a Sunday. And when we look back now, I mean, it was, gosh, it was crude and amateurish and it broke most of the time. Um, and the kindness, the generosity of the congregation tuning in was was just enormous and just just extraordinary. Um, but then recognising that not everyone in our community is uh, is digitally wealthy and trying to think about how we ensure that um, those people who, for whatever reason, don't have access to the internet or Zoom or YouTube or whatever, uh, know that they are beloved members of, of the community and uh, and discovering other ways of relating, whether that's, you know, who knew, who knew, Jody, that... <laughs> A mobile phone could be used as a phone. Who knew that? <laughs> or who remembers landlines and how effective they might be? Um, or ensuring that somebody gets something posted each week that reminds them that they are part of the worshipping community. Mm. Um, and doing that, you know, in as COVID a secure way as possible, of course. Um, so I, I've just been I've been stunned by the resilience, the robustness. Um, I think it's raised all sorts of huge theological and philosophical things about what a Catholic community, which has the Eucharist at its center, mm. is about when, uh, you know, I had dispensation to preside at the Eucharist from home, but other people were uh, uh, spiritually communing with that. I mean, it's raised all sorts of huge things. Um, we made the decision to go back into our building um, around July time and ran all the way through until the second lockdown and then went back in through to December before deciding to close our building in, in January again. And I think opening and closing has been costly. I mm -hmm. think it's it's been costly in ways in which I, I think it'll take me years to really process to do with that sense of of relief that we're back, particularly in July whenever or whenever it was. Um, and and then that sense of stepping back and buildings matter. They do matter. They don't matter. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I think one of the incredible things about this time is the Church of England, which has been a fetishized plant and building, um, discovering that it doesn't need to relate to it in quite the same way. But there's an iconic power about a focal point as well. And of course, there is a, a, an incalculable power to do with proximity as well bodies together feasting on the body of christ and we've had to find 
the kink, the wriggle room, the stretch in that as we've socially distanced and worn masks and yet received. But somehow going back and then closing, going back and closing again, it, uh, I, I long to be back in that building. And just to so you know, uh, one of the decisions we made was when we went back into the building, we would continue to broadcast because we realized that this meant that there are a whole group of people, some of whom are disabled, some of whom are housebound, who could participate in the life, the worship life of the church. And in, in ways which were unimaginable pre-lockdown. I mean, what a discovery that is. And, you know, disabled theologians, disabled campaigners will said, well, we'll wake up, you know, you ableist clowns. Um, well, hopefully more of us have woken up now to get with the programme, as it were. But that is exciting. But there's just so... there's it. I'm going to be processing this for the rest of my life, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think one of the things that I I don't have any real <laughs> wisdom or insight into, but that I am wondering is, you know, because there was all that conversation around, well, you know, um, often people, um, you know, whether it's to do with a disability or, you know, for other reasons, cannot access the church building, either the building or the day or the way it's done or whatever, you know, have been in the you know the space of the internet for a lot longer than than some of the rest of us so so making church accessible in that way but that doesn't let us off from trying to make the the building and that's not to make the building the only thing or to make the other stuff which is not in the building not real um but that actually to look at how we do church so that as much as far as possible in our human frailties and fallibilities, everyone really is welcome. I mean, it's it's not it's not a you know, it's a very simple um, idea, I guess. But, you know, it's I just I feel that I really feel that in my soul with this. How do we make things so they really are? Everyone is welcome. Mm. absolutely oh gosh so what about for your um sort of own um, yeah my own story i mean oh oh yeah. my goodness i mean they do you remember when we used to talk about the corona coaster do you remember uh, nostalgically um, oh i'm on the corona coaster that that was one of those words of 2020 and i mean it's a sort of faith journey it it, it there have been those significant ups and downs and twists and turns. I mean, one thing that is was very true in that first lockdown is that I don't think I prayed as mm -hmm. intently and as intensely for a long time as I did during that lockdown. And having a sense of being connected to a, a kind of great cloud of witnesses. And part of that was to do with regularly keeping morning and often evening prayer in the Northumbrian community uh, on my YouTube channel and just knowing there were other people there but and, and you know sharing that that great calling of prayer and praise and worship but but that sense of stripping away you know that 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 time was a time of of me returning to some significant basics I think 
And you know, a crucial part of, of the journey of the last 10 plus months is regular prayer with colleagues using Zoom, which means that you know, we're sat at home and I actually get to pray now with some colleagues who pre-COVID geographically i we couldn't i mean even though you know we're sort of only three miles down the road from each other it just didn't make sense for us to get in the you know the the jalopy or the equipage and you know travel down to each other's churches you know and it's sort of not environmentally sound either but we we can meet each other in our homes and you know, I, I'm not the first and I won't be the last to say this. And I, I think you've had lots of really wise things to say about this, but rediscovering the, the dignity of of domestic theology. Mm. Um, the power of of the home as a place for prayer. You know, the you know, what sometimes what was called as a book written years ago now, I forget, forget the name of the woman who wrote it called the quote quotidian mysteries you know, the sort of mysteries of the everyday mm. and finding the rhythm of god in that um and gosh this isn't the space is it to get into that frankly toxic discussion that sort of happened about you know the the kitchen table versus the altar indeed and well uh, yes i as you know i feel rather strongly <laughs> no and rightly <laughs> so i mean you know it won't come as a surprise that i'm with you on, on that i mean much as i i love the the, the altar mm. but we 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 it's also important that we remember its its domestic gestures as well the mm. the the concept of the table as well where bread and is broken and wine outpoured is mm. you know that that sense of the meals of early Christianity being domestic meals as much as sacred meals and finding the meeting point of God in the midst of it. And so I think that's been really, really significant for me. I mean, I don't, it makes this all sounds like, oh, it's, oh, it's been terrific. Um, but actually, uh, uh, I mean, immensely costly too. And I'm just feeling uh, like a husk much of the time, mm. stripped bare and exhausted, weary, um, with the endlessness of it all. Um, and, you know, living the facts of the body. I mean, I for me, I think I've discovered or been reminded that touch really matters to me the haptic really matters um to, to to be able to touch god to raise god up from the altar table or, or hug family and friends i'm not a hugely huggy person i'm really not but uh, apart from having blood taken and or an ultrasound or having my hair cut i've not touched physically touched another human being for ten and a half months and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm adapted to it but then i catch a glimpse of it and it's 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 horrible and then i think can i go back um can and of course we we can't we can only go forward but but can you know i i just want to hug my mum and dad mm. my dad hates being hugged but sod it sod it dad you, you're gonna get hugged 
Uh, you're gonna like it. You're gonna like it for once. Um, anyway. Um, so yeah, there's been huge costs. And I think I, I reached certainly by Christmas where I think none of us have been taking the retreat time or the holiday time that we normally mm. would. I, I was just completely spent and just had to unplug from the world because there's something very tiring about ministry via zoom as well you know or you know ministry via digital means it's mm. uh, yeah. you don't get the same <clears throat> feedback i guess i mean maybe slightly more on zoom i don't know we've been doing um either live streams or, or pre-records but what that means especially you know if you're kind of preaching and if you if you are used to preaching being this thing which is created as you do it yes. with the people to whom you are speaking and who are receiving it and you're receiving their responses and that's absent from this you know I, I find myself having to imagine you know sort of you know in a way to try and generate that um and uh, you know maybe sometimes it works um I know sometimes it it does not uh, but it's certainly either way, whether it works, you'll have to ask them for the people who are receiving it. It's exhausting from yes. this side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, yeah, that I, I mean, I am very much one of those people who is is about the, the co-creation of of wo the word in in real time and that sense of the the crackle of the energy and and drawing energy from others and gosh you know the the, the cold stare of the webcam simply doesn't give you much feedback anyway so that's it's a mixed picture i think is what i'm telling you about faith and community yes yes so i mean in that in the mixed picture there's maybe been some you know glimpses of glory but there has definitely also been some you know terrible crap so how and why do you continue with jesus in that moment <laughs> of of uh, of crap i mean I, I i well i've got two answers one is just two sentences and but i'd also like to to read something if i may that, that i wrote last year Please. i think the simple answer is because jesus bears with me and where else to whom shall we go lord you have the words of life and all of that and there's nowhere else to find jesus actually in my view except in in the crap in the warp and the weft so that's the simple answer now the pompous answer is this and um um or at least the more poetic answer is this absolutely um, we we love it come on bring it on okay so this is very this is very very indulgent and um um just bear with me, given that um, uh, that I haven't already flagged. I flagged up that I have a, a health condition. My health condition is is Crohn's disease, um, and it, uh, complex Crohn's is something I've lived with for over twenty years, and it's part of me. And I I happen to have uh, an ileostomy, um, which is a type of colostomy, um, and I've had stomas as they're known for most of well over twenty years now, and they're part of my life, but. Um, I appreciate that for some people they 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 are a slightly scary thing and this does talk really about about stomas it also yeah it doesn't hold back in in its description of jesus on the cross so here we go Brilliant. thank you 
The body, conventionally, is a site of nine openings. We typically live this body with a kind of ordinary comfort, though the profound shifts of puberty can puncture the body image of that lived reality. Puberty's wild changes can puncture and disturb the equilibrium of the lived and living body. One has to learn to live one's body in new ways. As a trans person who transitioned in their early 20s, I suppose I've had to learn to live my body in multiple seemingly strange ways. In addition, as a person with Crohn's, I've had to learn to live with additional openings into my body. I live with insides on the outside. I live with shit and stench. And I, I have come to know that to accept this reality is not only life-saving, but a place of goodness and gift and hope. It is a place, I sense, of punctum, the puncturing of, um, of, uh, of, of, of our bodies, of an opening up of our bodies, of new troubling uh, understandings of the world, of truth and the jarring possibilities of lived reality. Herein is part of the adventure of the body, of its precarious promise and its fragile hope, which I think is the only hope that should interest us. Why? Because this is the hope God reveals to us in his punctured body. God himself, in Jesus Christ, becomes the site of puncturing, the punctum made flesh. God knows human openings, of course. He knows how the world gets into the body. He knows the places where the costs and pleasures of being mortal issue forth and are received. In Christ, God weeps through punctum, the tear ducts. He breathes and speaks and hears and listens. He micturates and defecates. He knows the pleasure of having a penis that can grow hard and squirt semen. And he is pierced upon a cross. In crucifixion, God's body thereby becomes a site of five additional openings. The place where nails have pierced skin and bone, and the wound in the side created by a thrust of a spear. Christ in his puncturing is a sight of water and blood. If the soldier in his clumsiness had pierced the colon or ilium as he thrust his spear up into Christ's body, into his lungs and heart, God would also have become a sight of stoma. I trust I say nothing unorthodox. It is the pierced body of God that holds the promise of our full humanity. It is the shock of recognition of our precariousness and our promise. It is the site of reconciliation of humanity to God and God to humanity. It is a site of trauma, grief and wreck. And yet the mystery is the possibility of hope in the wreckage. The risen body is a punctured body. It is punctum that reformulates the adventure, the aventuren, the risk of losing, the travel that risks everything of the human body called into the divine body 
Only in the risk of everything lost, only in the walk towards death and breakage, only in the hands of the other, is the fullness of life and human being revealed and discovered. So I think it's only in the midst of the wreckage and the promise of something new. It's only in the midst of our bodies, in the way in which they travel through time and space, that we have any kind of promise of a, of a new day. And so where else is there to go except Jesus, God made flesh, God who knows us, inside out, outside in, God of wounds, God of wreckage, God of the third day. Someone said to me yesterday that the thing about being a Christian is that we are people of the third day. We, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow, the second day, but we look beyond that to the third day, the day of resurrection. And gosh, sometimes it does feel like we wait a long time for that third day to come, but still we believe. And we believe in and through him who is us and not us, who is fully human and fully divine, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, <laughs> and uh, a, a better place we, we couldn't choose uh, to end for today. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for your time and your wisdom and your creativity and your giving of yourself into this space. Thank well, you. Th thank you, Jodie, for having, having a, a, a clown like me come <laughs> on and, um, and, and, and witter on in a, in a, a mostly nonsensical manner. Not at all, and any time, any time. We end today with these words from John chapter 6. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Let others know about it and listen on Fridays for new episodes, which you can get from Anchor or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify among other platforms. Go well into your day and may you come again soon to these doors.